Hello everyone and welcome to Radically Normal. I'm Andre here with Michael and on today's episode titled Treasure, we'll be discussing Mark chapter 10 and 11 in which we see the story of the rich young man, Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, as well as when Jesus cleanses the temple. Hope you guys enjoy this episode. So this is a switch up from the last couple months. What's new about today, Andre? You know, it's, it's really interesting. Today we are actually home. It's Thanksgiving break. We both got a chance to come home, but you know, much as is 2020, um, we actually got home on, I want to say I got home on Tuesday, but you know, you weren't able to be home yet. So despite me being home, we ended up actually recording one episode, uh, still over uh, a zoom call, which is kind of unfortunate, but you know, I'm very <laughs> happy that we're going to record at least once in person before we both go back to, uh, you to Norman and, and myself to Houston. So I'm really excited. Yeah, me too. This is the first episode we've recorded in person in months, and uh, it's been a great time since we got back. After Thanksgiving, we got up at 4 a.m. on Friday and uh, went Black Friday shopping to North Face and to, to Marshall's, and uh, there were some good deals, but I got some uh, skiing and climbing pants from North Face, and then we were at Marshall's, and Andre picked up some some pants to mock me because they had like these stirrup straps similar to what the pants that I had gotten. And then he ended up getting like an amazing deal at Marshall's on some ski pants for our ski trip this winter. Yeah. It's actually really funny because it was, uh, it was us two and, and another friend as well as Mike's girlfriend. And she really wanted to go to Marshall's for black Friday. And you know, our other friend Dane pointed out that Every day is Black Friday at Marshall, so it wouldn't make any sen- <laughs> it wouldn't make any sense to to actually go there. But uh, we ended up waiting until they opened, and um, yeah, found this like crazy deal on some like expensive or normally expensive uh, ski pants. So I guess I'll use them and, and maybe resell them or uh, maybe keep them in case if I ever go skiing again. But it was an, it was an interesting find, and and I'm I'm really thankful that I, I don't have to spend excessive amounts of money on ski pants now. Yeah, but the fact that Andre is considering wearing them once and then selling them rather than just having a nice ski uh, pair of ski pants at hand for the rest of his life is is baffling. At the same time, I could probably resell them for more than I paid for them, so I think it's it's kind of worth it. Yeah, maybe. I'm not really sure, and uh, I'm not sure what those kind of things go like on eBay. In fact, there's a friend, there's a guy from our high school who has sold. Uh, tens of thousands of dollars worth of stuff like resold from the out from different outlet malls and that sort of thing um so maybe you can get some lessons from him maybe so but maybe i'll just keep them who knows maybe i'll go skiing again a few more times before they don't fit me anymore (laughs) andre's worried about being a beginner but i actually for all the climbing i've done have never skied either so we'll both be in the uh, beginner boat right there yeah hopefully um hopefully we can get a little bit of skill in in the three days that that will be there skiing um so we can actually uh, go on something that's not a a bunny bunny uh, whatever trail or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> a bunny trail? A bunny hill. What's wow. it called? Okay, yeah, yeah. I, I think it's a bunny hill. Uh, yeah, hopefully we can get off of those too. And uh, yeah, I think it'll be a great time. We have like a pretty large group going and uh, yeah, it should be a great trip. But that's in another month and a half. And today we're looking at Mark 10 and 11, which is actually an amazing passage. So do you want to go ahead and jump in? Yeah, man, let's do it. Let's just uh, go through... Go through both of these uh, books. Our hope is to get through 10 and 11, but, you know, obviously if we be- begin to, you know, have time constraints, then we might split it up into episodes, but the goal is to get through both. So let's jump right in. 
Yeah, so the first thing is in Mark chapter 10, we see that Jesus leaves Galilee, and according to some people, he doesn't return to Galilee until after the resurrection, but then he returns to Judea, and uh, that's in the south, and then so he begins to teach. And so the Pharisees come up and ask him a question about divorce, and he asks what what Moses commands them. And it's not because Jesus is anti-Moses. Jesus is super pro-Moses. That's why he says in John 5 that if they actually believed in Moses, they would believe in Jesus because then they would believe in the greater prophet to come that Moses spoke about in in Deuteronomy 18. So Jesus is pro-Moses and asks them what what Moses uh, has to say. And then Jesus says that it was written because of their hardness of heart. And so it's very interesting, though, because Jesus' argument about why they shouldn't divorce is because he's reaffirming the Old Testament picture for marriage and a godly sexual ethic, which I think is not just countercultural for us, but also countercultural for them because their understanding of divorce is even different from what Jesus has to say. Yeah, for sure, man. I thought this this uh, section here was pretty interesting because uh, looking into it a little more, um, when you know when Jesus points out that you know this was instituted by Moses because of their hardness of heart, I was looking into like a little bit of of, of what that meant, and kind of the back in like Deuteronomy where where it speaks of uncleanliness um, when it comes to divorce, like that being the precursor to a divorce that that is what Moses said was okay. Um, I think there was like some interpretations at the time where that just meant, for example. Um, a wife did something that the husband didn't like and he was like, he would just, you know, say that's uncleanliness. I'm divorcing you now. And that was like an in- incorrect interpretation because the original interpretation would have been more so to, to say this uncleanliness was, uh, adultery. Um, so in the case of a husband or wife, uh, committing an adulterous act, then divorce would be something that Moses was, was therefore like instituting in that situation. So it was interesting how they were kind of twisting what Moses was saying and here Jesus was calling them back to what Moses said and and calling them to interpret this the right way and, and telling them that their hardness of heart was because of their misinterpretation of what was actually going on there. Yeah, that's really interesting that you're talking about Exodus and Deuteronomy because on the lines of what uh, on, in the lines of what uh, different books Moses wrote, if we think about Genesis, when we walked through Genesis with uh, Mr. Snyder and I've talked about Genesis in other episodes, we've talked about how Genesis, one of the themes is that it leaves questions unanswered, that there's some of the mystery, there, so there are some mysteries there that are unresolved until later in the text. And so there's some mysteries around like Genesis 2 and 3 with the man and the woman that are unresolved until later. And so, for instance, we don't understand the entire picture of marriage until we get to Ephesians 5, where Paul writes that marriage is to reflect the gospel, that as as Christ loved his church, so the husband is supposed to love his wife, and that marriage is supposed to be a picture of the gospel, which is why marriage is supposed to be this picture of the gospel and and the the reason for God uh, hating divorce. You think of Malachi chapter 2 or uh, Matthew chapter 5, because it shows the Christ's covenant faithfulness to the church, and so the husband and the wife are supposed to reflect that, which is why in Matthew 5 and in Paul's writings, we see very few grounds for divorce. We see uh, sexual immorality or uh, adultery as one of them, and then we also see abandonment as the other. And so some people object to this and talk about like abuse, but I think you could argue that abuse is a form of abandonment because this would, it's not just that one could leave the home, one could also make a safe uh, make a home unsafe to be in. And that would also be a form of abandonment. But the point of what Jesus is saying is that he's speaking in verse nine about what God has joined together. And he wants that he wants a man and a woman to be a picture of what he is doing with his church. That's really good, man. And I don't really have anything else uh, here about uh, this section on divorce and not much else on, on the section of 
let the children come to me. But, you know, to stop here for a second, you know, what was happening here was they were trying to like stop people from bringing children over to Jesus and Jesus saying, no, no, uh, let them come over to me. He says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them uh, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. I think this is a, a really cool passage here to think about um, because, you know, I think that like children, their way of thinking and understanding is is kind of very um, pure. Like they still have their innocence. Um, they're not really like bruised by, by the world yet and um, seeing like all the like evil in it. And I think that a lot of times we like once we um, begin to think about other things, not, not just uh, receiving our salvation, but we feel like we have to like earn things. We feel like we have to take it into our own hands. Um, this kind of goes into the next section with the rich young man where he says, what must I do to earn my salvation? And I think that, you know, Jesus is calling us to be more such like a child who just, you know, freely receives the gifts of their parents or of their older siblings or of their loved ones or whoever. And is just really thankful, has a smile on their face. You know, you can just tell that they just love this present they've received or, or this gift that they've received and not so much thinking like, what do I have to do now to earn it? Do I owe you something now? Um, not just being like a uh, course and having a hardened heart when it comes to receiving that gift. In this case, the gift of salvation, Jesus says, act such like a child who, you know, receives the gifts. Like think of a, of a lollipop or whatever, just like opens it up, pops it right <laughs> in their mouth. They're not really thinking like, oh, now I'm going to owe you next time. I don't really want to take this. Not just being um, calloused in that way. Yeah, that's super good. It's also interesting how the how the disciples potentially view children, kind of a utilitarian view. They view them potentially in terms of their utility. The children have nothing to offer. There's no gain for Jesus and the 12 for talking to the children. It's just eating up time. And there's also no gain for, uh, like, God doesn't need his children. God is loving towards us and desires our obedience and worship. And that brings glory and honor to his name. But God isn't in need of people. God is sufficient on his own. And so it's the children have nothing to offer Jesus, yet he still loves them. And like Andre already said, a child is led and tr- led by and trusts his father, and we're to openly receive what God uh, has for us. And then so we see that he sets out on this journey, and a man runs up to him, kneels before him, and asks him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So as we get into this story on the, the heading says, The Rich Young Man, uh, what do you think is important that we see first? I think it's important, like you said, that, you know, it's obvious that this man is wealthy. He's he's climbed up the metaphorical ladder of success and um, clearly, like, as is in the culture at the time, he believes that the things that he's done um, has set him apart, uh, potentially from his peers. He's successful. Um, when Jesus asks him, asks him um, if he has, you know, followed the commandments of Moses, um, he specifically, like, mentions murder, adultery, theft, uh, bearing false witness, um, honoring your father and mother, you know, these are things that in their culture, um, their understanding of it, you know, he believes that he's done all the right things that he needs to do in order to, you know, be righteous and, um, you know, be a good person. And and here Jesus, you know, calls him and and like we see that he's a rich man, Jesus tells him to, um, you know, give away all of his belongings and then follow him. And I think that's, it's really interesting distinction to make that, you know, he doesn't want to do that. He chooses money over God. Yeah, I think that's really good because money can be a stumbling block. We see in 1 Timothy 6 how money can lead to all sorts of evil or a love for money. And same with Hebrews 13 says, don't have a love for money. And so that's really interesting because I actually first, before we get into that, I think from an apologetic perspective, maybe you're 
skeptical about this story, or maybe you're skeptical about Jesus being co-eternal with the Father, because in verse 18, Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. But the reason for that is because the the, the young man had called him good teacher. And he's the, the point is that, or Jesus's point is that it's not that uh, he's not God, it's that a teacher isn't God. Some random teacher is not the equivalent of God and good. No one is good. Only God is good, and God is redeeming people and making them good, but everyone is depraved at heart. And so, as just a teacher, Jesus isn't good. Jesus is good as as he's God. And then, so I think it's really interesting, because after what Andre was talking about with the commandments, Jesus looks at him and loves him. And I think that's important to pause and reflect on, because he's about to tell the man something super, super harsh. Or it's going to come off harsh, it's going to come off radical. But what's the precursor to that? It's absolute love that has no sinful impact uh, because Jesus didn't sin. He had pure intentions with every interaction. And so he loves the man, and then he sells to him, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have. Give it to the poor. You'll have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. So he wasn't being harsh. He loved the man. And so he's saying something so radical that shows the man he's going to have to step out of his comfort zone and just trust God, just like the children just receive what the Father has to say, receive what the Father has to give. He's going to have to trust God, step out of the comfort zone, and just follow Jesus. Kind of like we talked about in Mark 8, the disciples, one who takes up his cross daily and follows Jesus. He doesn't seek to save his soul. He seeks to lose it for Jesus' sake. And so the man, but the man's affections are in the wrong place, and he goes away disheartened uh, because he's focused too much on what he has rather than what that rather than the person in front of him, who's Jesus. And so helpfully, I found this quote from R. H. Gundry to just be one of the best quotes I've ever heard about anything in any of the Gospels. And he said that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell all their possessions, gives comfort only to the kind of people to whom he would issue that command. So he's saying. If you're if you take comfort in the fact that Jesus didn't ask you to give up everything and sell all you had, then you're the exact type of person he would give that command to. And I think that really sets us in our place and humbles us because we need to realize that if Jesus asked us to, we would do that and we should do that. And he's saying, you know, that should be the posture of our heart and if you're glad he hasn't asked you to do that, then Jesus would be the type of person to say that to you. And I think that's incredible. Uh one thing that I really found interesting about this section too is is obviously in in this specific instance he's talking to someone who who is who's wealthy you know he has a love for money um, that's the specific thing that you know he's uh, prescribing the solution to the specific problem here but I think it's important to understand you know specifically when when he goes on to say that it's easier um, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God right. I really found that interesting because, you know, I think that it's not, I don't think that God or Jesus in this situation is, is saying, you know, money is evil. Don't have any money. Right. I think it's, it's the love of money that, that causes uh, your heart to, you know, turn away from God. That's, that's the evil thing there. You know, I think it, it could be the same as um, many other things, uh, pride, um, love of money, you know, a numerous amounts of sins, anything that we're, um, we feel that we have complete control over and we don't rely upon God anymore. In this case, it was, it was this man's success. He felt like he didn't need God because he was successful. Um, any of those things, I think that, you know, here, all of us, we, you know, we have countless blessings from God. We, you know, we should consider ourselves uh, rich and wealthy when it comes to, you know, our blessings, all the things that we have. We, we live a, a very, like, privileged um, situation, especially, like, in the United States. 
And I think that, you know, here he, he's, he's speaking to all of those things. When I think of, you know, a camel, like a, a large clumsy animal trying to get through the <laughs> eye of a needle, that's impossible. I'm thinking he's not just talking about people who have money. He's talking about all of us. Like just a few verses later in verse 27, he says, with man, is, it is impossible, but not with God for all things are possible with God. I think here he is saying, you know, no matter what thing it is that you're prideful about, it will be impossible for you to get to the kingdom if you can't um, rely upon God and not rely upon your own understanding and your own, you know, prideful ways. You have to l- renounce that, let go of that and look towards God or else you will be like the camel trying to get through this tiny little um, hole of the needle. And, you know, you need to rely upon God because it is through God, which all things are possible and through which your salvation can be attained. Man, that's so good. I'm sure when I'm editing, I'll uh, rewind and listen to you say that a couple times. And it's interesting, though, in between the two verses you quoted, in verse 26, it's it's so interesting to see the disciples' view of money still, despite all the things Jesus has told them. Because after he talks about how it'll be hard for a rich man to inherit the kingdom of God and to go through the eye of a needle— or for the when he refers to the camel going through the eye of a needle, they're astonished. They say to him, then who can be saved? And think about the words, then who? Because he's saying it'll be hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And then he said, or and then they say, then who can be saved? As if to them, the, the most desirable situation in life is to be the person that is wealthy or to be rich, just like the man who had just come up to him with all of the possessions. And Jesus flips that on its head and says, it doesn't matter what you have, uh, you're going to need to be dependent on God because only God can give you eternal life. And you're going to need to, in a, some sort of sense for anyone that accepts Christ, is going to need to suffer for that because he says just two verses later that there's going to be people that are leaving their house, leaving their families for the sake of the gospel, and they're going to be rewarded later. So it's an eternal reward for a temporary sacrifice and suffering, regardless if it has to do with money, circumstances, uh, or anything else Andre talked about. For sure, man. And, you know, I think that, you know, here the call is to, you know, give our gifts uh, towards God's glory. And then, you know, Jesus is calling us to be brave and have courage um, in doing that and know that our treasure will be stored in heaven and not to, not to worry about the things that you know, we have on earth, which we are um, have pride over potentially. And I think that as Jesus does that, you know, he calls uh, us to, you know, be brave and give up our, our belongings, give up our wealth and that sort of thing. But then he goes into foretelling his death for a third time. And here he, he displays his own bravery, his own courage. Um, throughout this whole uh, chapter, the past few chapters, they've actually been walking towards, we're going to see walking towards uh, the place where uh, Christ will eventually um, be put to death. And we see, you know, here he is, you know, he's telling of his own death again and, and telling of all the the terrible things that are going to happen, that he's going to be mocked, that are going to spit on him, they're going to flog him, they're going to, they're going to kill him. And, you know, he is walking towards this willingly out of love. Um, we've talked about how Christ um, came to serve. And, you know, here he's showing his courage as, as uh, he calls us to have courage. Um, he's showing his own as well. Yeah, that's so good. And it's, in, yeah, I think that him pointing out what's going to happen to him shows that he's at rest with it and the disciples need to be as well. And in verse 33, he says he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. And that can be kind of confusing because while Rome does guide his uh, him ending up on the cross, well, because Pilate chooses uh, to crucify him for the effects of political expediency, the, the, he's actually it's actually just as much dictated by the fact that the Jews choose him over uh, Barabbas. So I think that 
in light of the Old Testament, this phrase delivered over to the Gentiles is meant to be handed over to God's judgment because in Leviticus 26, Hosea chapter 8, and some other places, we see that for God's people to be delivered over to the Gentiles outside of Israel meant to be handed up to God's wrath. And so here he's saying, I'm going to take on God's wrath on your behalf. I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again. And so then we see that James and John have a question for him. And I think that, you know, the first time, maybe the second time that Jesus foretold his, his death, you know, the disciples, they were confused, dismayed, didn't understand, didn't believe. Then we saw uh, the transfiguration. Now he's foretelling his death a third time. They've seen all these miracles. I think at this point, they really do understand. And James and John are thinking, what can we get out of this? What can we ask Christ to do for us? We know that he is going to go back to heaven. He's going to be with the Father. And what, you know, what, what can we gain for our own personal glorification and, you know, they ask him, can we please sit at your right and left hand? Jesus, you know, ha- uh, have mercy on us. Let us sit right next to you in the kingdom. Yeah, that's so, that's so, that's exactly what they say. And it's interesting, though, because of what Jesus has to respond. He doesn't respond like, oh, yeah, let me just help you out. I got you, you know, whatever. He says, you don't know what you're asking. You have no clue what's about to happen. He's been telling them about the crucifixion, the resurrection. You have to die to yourself. You're going to suffer. But they still don't understand. So he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drink, the cup referring to God's wrath, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And so in 1 Peter 3, we see Peter use this idea of baptism and floodwaters, referring back to Noah, as like the floodwaters of God's wrath as he pours out his water on the earth in the time of Noah in Genesis 6 through 9. And I'm super skeptical and I kind of laugh because in the next verse, they say to him, we are able, and I just wrote next to it, hmm, because uh, the disciples are constantly frightful, constantly afraid, constantly fleeing, and it's not till Acts that we see like the boldness of the disciples, and uh, and that includes uh, James and John, and so I just think that that's uh, a super interesting response, and then Jesus replies to them and says, uh, don't worry, you're gonna, you're gonna suffer, you're gonna go through these things, and uh, however, I can't even grant this uh, because my father has uh, prepared it. I think it's interesting because you know he doesn't tell them they're going to suffer. He tells them, "Yeah, you, you uh, can be baptized as I will be baptized." And, and we know kind of what that means. And we might think, you know, maybe Jesus is being cynical here, but I definitely think that's not the case because I don't think that he's just prescribing this to um, James and John specifically. I think that you know, many, well, we know that many of the disciples suffered um, gruesome deaths. Um, we know that. You know, the Bible says that we will be persecuted. I think that, you know, this is more so of of a warning and they kind of just didn't get it. And it is a little funny, but at the same time, we know that, you know, they're going to be put to death afterwards, uh, later on, as we see them, you know, spreading, um, you know, all the events that happened when Jesus was on the earth in his ministry. And when Jesus is gone, um, you know, they're going to, you know, they're going to suffer just in the same way. Yeah, I totally agree. And it's, and it's interesting because following that, the the disciples get angry, and then Jesus speaks to like cultural understandings of wealth and authority, but he kind of just flips on his head. He says, if you're going to be great, you have to be a servant. And this is like the common passage, and I've used it too, to, to teach about servant leadership and to, t- to talk about that. And uh, but, it's, but the key here is not just for us. The key is to understand first and foremost, before we step into to those ideas, is to see what Jesus has to say about himself, which is verse 45, which reads, For even the Son of Man came not to serve, or came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what, why did the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, come? 
He came to serve other people, primary rule, and to give his life as a ransom for many to reconcile people to God for the glory of God. And so next, right after that, we uh, see that they come to Jericho and he fi- and there's a man named Bartimaeus who cries out, Jesus, son of David. And I- I'm not sure how Mark, you know, at all times decided to order or uh, put in chronology the things that are going on. However, it's interesting that he's referring to Jesus as the son of David. We've talked a lot about on this podcast in 1 Samuel or here about how Jesus is the Davidic king for eternity. And so right here, we're seeing this idea about kingship, son of David, right before we get into chapter 11 coming up, where we're going to talk about the triumphal entry. And I think it's interesting. I think for this, you know, last section here, I think it's important to point out it's, it's a similar story to what we've seen to where the blind man uh, has has faith. This is why he's healed. And I think that, but more so important to transition over to chapter 11 really quickly. Um, in verse 45, when we see that uh, the Son of Man came to serve and not uh, not to be served, we see that, you know, he uh, didn't want to come to be a ruler. He came to be a servant and to serve others. And we see this uh, primarily in this distinction. We see it starting in uh, chapter 11, when we see that Jesus comes in on a donkey and not on a, on a large battle horse. We see him come in on, it says just a, just a colt or, or a donkey, um, a smaller animal. He comes in to, you know, not display himself as a ruler, but, you know, to show that, you know, he is uh, the suffering servant and, and not, not this uh, powerful king. Yeah. And so Matthew makes the connection more obvious, but th- the people at the time would have seen what was going on. So in Zechariah 9.9, 9, uh, it talks about the coming king and it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king, who is Jesus, is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, so salvation belongs to Jesus. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a a donkey. And so the king of Jerusalem, the king and the savior of Israel, is to be this one who rides in on a donkey, and they see this. And so this story and what's coming up here as we begin to talk about the temple, that's the focus of chapters 11 through 13. These are all focused on, these have so many Old Testament allusions. We see uh, them cry out, Hosanna, and this comes from Psalm uh, 118. And we see them talk about the coming kingdom of David in verse 10. And this thinks back to the the Davidic covenant when uh, God told David that there would be, his son would be on the throne uh, forever. And so this is just, this would have just been right up uh the Jews alley in terms of understanding what was happening. And it's also perhaps that wrongly, many probably thought Jesus was going to set up his kingdom in Israel's capital right then and there. And I think that's it's an idea that we've discussed many times, you know, Jesus telling people not to tell anyone when, 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 a, when a miracle happened, you know, and I think it was, it was all, all of it that we've seen so far has all been setting up to this moment when, um, when we're going to see all, all the things that will, you know, transpire here. We've seen Jesus be uh, the suffering um, servant. Uh, we've seen him, you know, he is, he, he came to save and he came to teach and he, and he came to serve and he didn't come just to, you know, be this person who, who had a political uh, uprising as many of the people wanted and, and thought would happen. Um, and that's not what we see of who Jesus is and, and how he, he is going to save. Exactly. And this is Palm Sunday. This is what the church celebrates as the beginning of Easter week, the week, the Sunday before uh, with the palms. And so in verse eight, it talks about leafy branches. And so palms isn't just some like neutral idea or whatever for the cultural time uh, that would have indicated 
a celebration. And so as the king rides in, they think that this is their like political ruler. They're wrong about that because these are the same people, uh, it's thought, that are eventually about to reject Jesus before he's crucified. And so right after that, we see that on the following day, right after this, he's gone into the temple in verse 11, and uh, they've come from Bethany. He was hungry. He sees a fig tree uh, in leaf in verse 12, but he goes to it and he can't find anything. And so he curses it. He say he says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And one commentator talked about how this is the only miracle of destruction. So you see about, you see a lot of miracles in the gospels, uh, whether you're talking about salvation, Jesus rising from the dead, or Jesus healing Bartimaeus, as we just saw in the last chapter, or uh, him taking out the legion of demons in Mark chapter five, which we spent a bit of time on uh, back in that episode. But this is like a miracle of destruction. The, the tree is cursed. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And so this cursing shows the fate of the temple to come about. No fruit leads to destruction. This is judgment on the temple. There's not proper worship of God. Commercialism defines it. And so guess what? We're going to be back to Oreo sandwich time if you've been following along with us because we see a fig tree uh, event. We see him cleanse the temple and then the, 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 the fig tree is explained. So we see a sandwich here where we go fig tree, temple fig tree, because it's all going to be about judgment on the temple, judgment on Israel. For sure, man. And, you know, I definitely would have said, you know, the same thing of, of, of an Oreo sandwich here as well, because, you know, I saw that this fig tree was, was really pointing uh, to the cleansing of the temple as well, where Jesus thought that this fig tree had, had figs on it because, you know, that, that was its appearance. And when he got there and, you know, looked under the leaves, there was, there was no fruit. And much in the same, you know, the uh, the temple and, and the uh, you know the Pharisees, all the religious leaders, you know, they were putting up this this front, but you know behind the scenes, um, they were having all these you know business dealings, doing a, you know there was corruption in the temple, and Jesus was um, 100% angered by this. He was you know calling them out, and and much like the fig tree where where he curses it, um, you know he goes in and says you know you guys are doing this all wrong. What is going on here? Um, he says. Uh, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The prophet that I usually go back to is Isaiah. And we've looked at Ezekiel a little bit, but we, uh, especially in light of the parables, but we typically spend time with Isaiah. But today it's important to understand the fig tree and the temple in light of Jeremiah. And so in Jeremiah chapter 7, God gives uh, Jeremiah a word of judgment about the temple in Jerusalem and the, Isra the Israelites' actions. And so the word in uh, chapter 7 of Jeremiah, verse 3, is, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I'll let you dwell in this place. And in verse 11, God says, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? And so this Jesus is pulling the language from Jeremiah uh, 7, the language about the temple becoming a den of robbers, and applying it here, that there's judgment on the temple because of what Israel is doing. And then in chapter 8 of Jeremiah, to connect it to the fig tree, since all of this is coming together at the same time, God says that he's looking for fruit. God says, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered and what I gave them has passed away from them. So it's there that in Jeremiah 8, 13, that God can't find grapes or figs or fruit. And so who is God and who is the revelation of God in person? It's Jesus. And so Jesus sees no fruit in Israel in the temple. He sees that the, the leaves are withered and that there's no fruit figs and so he curses it he pronounces judgment just as we see in jeremiah 7 and jeremiah 8 
That's really good, man. And you know, the next day they, they see that the, the, the fig tree is, is withered, right? And, um, you know, Peter specifically, he, you know, he's super astonished. He's surprised. And I, I was kind of surprised by the fact that Peter was surprised just because of all the things that, you know, they've seen him do so far. Um, I wouldn't have th- thought that, you know, you know, making a tree die would have been that, that <laughs> crazy compared to all the things that they've seen so far. But, you know, um, they, they seem, they seem surprised to me. Um, but you know, I'll, I'll take that. Um, and I think it's interesting that then, you know, Jesus immediately, uh, calls them, you know, you didn't have any faith that this tree would wither. You're like, no, you need to have faith in the things that you pray for. Um, you need to, you know, truly believe and, and have faith just as we've seen all the people who, um, have been healed from, from Jesus' miracles. You know, he prescribed faith, faith to them. He's telling the disciples in the same way when you pray, you know, really believe in the things you're asking for. Um, and the, and the things you're asking the father to give you, you know, you have to believe you have to have faith as you pray. Yeah, I think that's true. And, and going along with what you're saying, you need faith to pray. And so what does faith reveal? It, it reveals that you have hope in God, that you have faith in God. And so for Israel, a lot of people had their faith in the temple, but Jesus cleanses the temple. He's flipping over the tables and he's doing that sort of thing. And so he's saying, with talking about faith here, your hope can't be in the temple. It can't be in anything else. It has to be in me. And who do we know from John chapter 2 that is the new temple? It's Jesus. Because Jesus uh, Jesus has the same revenge in court is recorded in John 2. And he says that he will this, uh, this building, the temple, will be destroyed and I'll raise it up in three days. And John adds... Uh, as a commentary on that, that Jesus was talking about his own body. So Jesus is the new temple in whom the people's hope is supposed to be. And I think it's also important to spend a little bit of time focused on, um, you know, the, the priests and scribes and all of these religious leaders. You know, we see here that they fear him. Uh, we see that they want to destroy him. Um, they obviously are happy with the corruption going on. They're okay with this new normal. They don't want anything to change. And, you know, I think it's interesting enough that uh, later on when they challenged Jesus's authority and um, you know, we've seen them the, this whole time asking him all these challenging questions and trying to, trying to catch him off guard. We saw a little bit of it in chapter 10 when uh, Jesus asked him a question about Moses and uh, in, in kind of an attempt to, you know, get to see what they say and, and, you know, kind of refocus them on, on, on the, on the correct um, path. But here he really, really gets them and really he accomplishes what they've been trying to do this whole time. Um, and he asked them, uh, to tell him if the baptism of John, John the Baptist was from a uh, heaven or from man. And he really challenges them and they start thinking, and they are really trapped. What they've been trying to do to Jesus this whole time is, is what's really accomplished here. And they don't even know what to say. And they can't answer because they know that either way, um, Jesus is going to be able to correct their actions and, and call them out for their, for the hardness of their heart. And, you know, then they don't get their question answered either. So I think this is, it was really cool to see how, what they've been trying to do this whole time and challenging Jesus here, Jesus challenges them back. Yeah, I think it's interesting that he asks a question in return. And it's also interesting in light of the fact that we've spent multiple episodes talking about at least part of the episode on integrity. Uh, we've talked about the motives of the Pharisees and the authorities. We've talked about, we talked about integrity with Dr. Moore a little bit. We talked about integrity when we talked uh, just recently about the, the witch of Endor and King Saul going to, to visit her and his lack of integrity. Uh, with the law and uh, him him protecting evil. And so now we see that they, again, have a lack of integrity. They're driven by fear and they're driven by being wrong because either they're going to be wrong or the people are going to, uh, or they're going to be afraid of the people. So 
They never really received, even talking about John, they never received John the Baptist teaching in chapter one about about the forgiveness of sins. And so when he's talking about the baptism of when he's talking about uh, the baptism of John, he need, we need to remember what happened at Jesus's baptism. Jesus, was, the heavens were torn open. Uh, Jesus was declared the Son of God, and uh, the Father uh, provides him or gives him the Holy Spirit as the Spirit descends on him, and Jesus is empowered uh, for mission. He's anointed. And so we see the baptism at the beginning of Mark as uh, Jesus is anointing as king. And today in chapter 11, we saw the triumphal entry, which has pictures of enthronement and coronation. And so in, in today's episode, along with many things in the temple and along with many great teachings about uh, leaving behind everything and making Jesus our all-satisfying all supreme treasure, we know that Jesus is the king who has been anointed in chapter 1 and now enthroned in this picture with coronation. And so uh, next week, we're going to look at the parable of the tenants in chapter 12, as long as some other uh, political questions and other things that Jesus has uh, to show us. So thanks for joining us today on Radically Normal.